A lot of this work can happen throughout the day proactively, kind of like how we don't wait until a kid's hangry and then we feed them. Like we try to stay ahead of it. We feed them breakfast and then a snack and then lunch and then a snack and then dinner or whatever. And we're trying to not get to a hangry place or not get to an overtired place. And we do the same thing with regulation where when you know what's regulating for them, then you can be proactive. I have been a fan of this week's guest for so many years, and I'm really excited to have her joining me on the podcast this week. Alyssa Blask Campbell is the CEO of Seed and Sew. She has a master's degree in early childhood education, and she is the author of a new book called Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. Her podcast, Voices of Your Village, is amazing. So I'm so excited, and I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation with Alyssa. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Today, I'm like very, very excited about our lovely guest. We have Alyssa Blast Campbell here today, and she she's the founder of Seed and Sew. She has a podcast called Voices of Your Village. She has an awesome new book coming out. And I, I have followed your content for many, many years, and I'm really, really excited to have a conversation with you. Thanks, Sarah. I'm super jazzed to get to hang out with you today. And yeah, I like can't wait. And like you, <laughs> I feel like when I first found you, I found you on Instagram when I was like, before I was doing any sort of, you know, talking about parenting in the public, like I worked in my mm-hmm. clinical practice with parents, but I was, you know, just a consumer of content. And I felt so comforted by what you write and how you speak to parents and how empowering you are because you, like it's very easy to scare parents or make them feel ashamed even when you're not trying to totally. like it's an art form to communicate things that it's new information potentially to people with without making them feel like oh I wasn't doing that and now in order to do it I have to kind of reconcile that sure. with myself that's vulnerable and it's you do it very well. Oh, thanks. I I hate shame. Like I just like it the <laughs> core of who I am. It doesn't speak to me. I'm someone who's like really driven and inspired and extrinsically motivated by like words of affirmation or positive feedback. And so I think it a little bit comes naturally to me because it's what fires me up is mm-hmm. being spoken to in a way that is shame free. And when I receive shame, I was an athlete growing up and all that. And when I receive shame based messaging, like I pull back and I shut down and it's not motivating for me to create change. And so I think yeah, delivering like shame free messaging personally for me just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I resonate with that as someone who you know, as a parent who receives it and appreciates it. And as someone who's also really striving to 
do the same of like helping parents get information that's based on neuroscience and, you know, child development and psychology, but not in a way that makes them feel like, I suck at this. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that same resonates with me. My husband actually just the other day, Zach was like, you really just hate it when people like talk down to you as if like you aren't willing to learn about something. And I was like, that's very true. Like I'm a really curious human. I'm open to learning and I hate being talked down to. (laughs) So for me, when I'm like speaking to parents, I'm like, yeah, I have a master's in early ed and I've done a lot of this work and a lot of this research. Most parents don't have a master's in early ed and haven't been spending time doing research on child development before they have kids. And so it makes total sense to me that they would come into this and be like, oh, wow, this feels new. And I, there's a lot that I don't know. Uh, and so in terms of like connecting with them, I don't know, I guess I walk into it in a way of like, I don't expect everyone to know all these things just because you had this kid or you were a parent to this child. Uh, I really believe it takes a village of us to do this jazz. Hence the podcast voices of your village. There it is. There it is, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because there's two things when you're talking that my mind goes to. One is you know, as a parent, I think parents that are listening can resonate with that. Like, oh, I really want to learn from someone who doesn't sort of talk down to me or think I need some sort of gentle explanation or, or a, obviously not a judgmental explanation, but even sort of that, like, I'm, you know, oh, let me explain it real slowly for you, you know, like sure. that tone. But yet, yet, we, and I do this, I catch myself all the time. We talk to our kids that way a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when we, as someone, I think you and I both work with a lot of parents. I find that when I talk to parents, it's kind of a modeling of how I also talk to kids. Sure. Where it's like, I see this, like you said, I see this genuine desire to learn and this innate curiosity and this good intention here. Let me like fill in some of these little gaps so there's fewer potholes, but like you got this. And that's how I talk to kids too. Obviously the language is developmentally appropriate. The con, like the the vocabulary is developmentally appropriate. The tone is pretty similar. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Actually we had um, my mother-in-law like a big birthday last year and we hosted it at our house. We have like a yard and a playground, whatever. And there was someone over at our house and I had, Sage was uh, about 18 months at the time. And we were in the sandbox with some kids and this woman was like, oh, you speak to him? Like he's like a five or a six year old. And I was like, huh. And I like sat with that and I was like, oh, you mean just like with my voice? And she was like, yeah, like the way you don't talk to him, like he's a young kid. And I was like, yeah, I don't talk to any kids like that. Like I, my tone with them, like he and I are in communication and conversation with each other. And I really see it that way from infancy where I I don't do a lot of like baby talk doesn't feel natural for me. It feels really uncomfortable. And I, as kids like continue to grow, like, yeah, I use kind of a regular tone with them that I would use with other folks. And I'll ask them questions like, huh, are you feeling curious about that? And 
I would use that same tone with just like modulated language with my husband, right? Like, tell me what's going on for you here. Like what's coming up, you know? And like, I can say that to Zach, but tell me what's going on here. What's coming up for my one-year-old doesn't mean anything, but are you feeling curious about that? But it's the same tone and kind of approach to it. You're right across the board. Yeah. And I think like, again, like I think parents, I also think baby talk or like, um, what do they call it? Like parentese yeah. is actually like super intrinsically, like it comes from a very biological place. Like a, it's very primal. Like parents yeah. actually very instinctively talk to their child in what is kind of in, in the psychology world called parentese, which is that sing-songy voice. And I, mm-hmm. and I want to distinguish because I actually think it's very appropriate to do that. Sure. And kids do respond really well to that. But I think as they get older, sometimes we we continue that, when, yeah. especially when we're trying to have like, you know, important conversations with them. And then that's why I think it starts to, we like, we hold on to that a little too long. Or there's like mm-hmm. a, there's a place for that in playfulness. But when we really want to like signal, hey, this is important and I want to really make sure I understand what you're experiencing here so we can kind of look at the problem together and figure it out that's like a time for like a really sort of a direct, more direct tone or a more direct isn't the word. Maybe you can think of the word I'm trying to think of, but like, like a, a more mature adult. Kind of modulated tone. tone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually, there's someone in our life who always when she'll be like engaging with the adults. And then when she turns to talk to the kids, she has this like other tone that she uses with kids always. And my son like pulls back from her, like doesn't, he like can't get there. And I asked him at one point, I was like, did you notice that her voice changes when she talks to kids? And he was like, mm-hmm. And I said, sometimes people do that when they turn and they talk to kids. She's still trying to connect with you and she's still listening to you. Uh, but I think for him, it was coming off as like, what are you, do- what are you doing? I just heard you talking to the adults and they're like, what's going on here? And I do think that that was a good distinction of like, for me, there's a difference between like it's playfulness, et cetera, versus I see us with kids as just like being in a relationship. Like I am in a relationship with my child and it is going to forever evolve, but I want him to know that I have respect for him and that I am going to, just like my tone's going to shift when I'm frustrated or my tone's going to shift when I'm feeling sad or sad that there's going to be like tonal shifts there. Uh, but I, I don't want it to be perceived as like talking down to. And I think this is something that can come up a lot when we're looking at emotional development, when folks are trying to like say the right words, people ask us a lot for like scripts to say in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I will provide some and always with the caveat of like, it is so much more effective for you to like take this as a jumping off point, but find the script that makes the most sense to you because saying the right words if you're not feeling connected to the child or it doesn't feel authentic is going to come off as inauthentic. And so for me, when I was like, the baby talk doesn't feel authentic, they can perceive that, right? That if I'm like, Mm -hmm. kind of like putting on this show, it doesn't feel like a connected, authentic relationship. And 
then kids don't respond. People will say like, oh, this thing isn't working. And I'm like, walk me through it. Like, what's your actual experience in the moment when your kid asks for a red cup instead of the blue cup and then throws a tantrum and tosses the cup? Like, are you in that moment experiencing empathy or able to connect with what they're feeling? Or are you like, oh my God, this is so annoying, which also is really valid because it is really Mm -hmm. annoying and inconvenient. But if you're just trying to say the right words, but what you're feeling inside is different, I think then it's where like we can see a shift in tone and we're like trying to sound calm and regulated and say the thing. It's like, no, I'm not inside calm and regulated and I don't actually feel this way. And kids can feel that. Yeah. I agree with you so, so much. And I'm curious, like, what do you help parents kind of shift? Like, you know, I, I'm I'm hearing the parent listening to this being like, okay, so then am I supposed to like figure out a way to feel empathy <laughs> when I'm not feeling it and just figure out how to get to that empathy place? Or is it okay to say like, I'm really frustrated that you just threw that cup. Like I'm trying to get dinner on the table. Like, why are you doing this? Like neither of those are compatible with the do you want the blue cup or the red cup? <laughs> Look, I'm smiling. I'm yeah. smiling. And on the inside, I'm going to freaking lose my mind. Totally. I'm going to say both. So one of my favorite parts of our research, should be Lauren, my colleague, and I created the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method, CEP. We call it SEP for short. We researched it across the U.S. It's what our book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, is really all about. And it's five components. And one of them is adult-child interactions. And the other four are about us. So I don't don't know about you, but I grew up in a household where like, I didn't receive this stuff. Got some of these tools, but not a lot of them. And so I'm building a lot of it as an adult, right? And like building self-awareness and self-regulation tools and understanding my biases and my triggers. And then where do I go from there? And really getting down and dirty with the neuroscience of like what's happening inside me, what's happening inside them. And we dive into all that in the set method. And then we go into like, all right, who's your unique kid? How do you respond to your unique child to support them? I don't believe in a one size fits all approach, but one of my favorite things about our research, it's not that there was this like quantum leap in a child's emotional development in a short period of time. But what did happen in a short period of time was that the adults were experiencing kids' emotions differently and then able to respond with intention and authenticity and connection. And that for me is the game changer because if you can then experience empathy, you can connect with them and be like, oh man, yeah, they are really frustrated about X. They really were expecting to have this thing happen and this other thing happen. And I know what it's like to have certain expectations and have them derailed, to be looking forward to something and have it canceled. Uh, I wrote an example in the book about my son's magnetile tower crashing. And inside, I'm just like, you can build it again, right? Like, not a giant deal. He is really frustrated and disappointed in this moment. And I didn't have a lot of empathy for it. I said the right words. I went through the whatever. And, but truthfully inside, didn't feel a lot of compassion for the magnetile tower crashing. And not long after I had folded a bunch of laundry that was in my living room in piles. And he came in and knocked down all my piles of laundry. And that was like a connecting moment for me where I was like, oh, can I fold this again? Sure. If someone walks in right now and is like, don't worry, Alyssa, you can fold it again. Like, absolutely not. 
I do not want to. I like that. I don't feel seen or connected. No, I'm frustrated and disappointed. Is it a solvable problem? Sure. Am I feeling these feelings? Yes. And that when we can start to see that, then we can breed more empathy. We're not empathizing with why they're feeling what they're feeling. We're empathizing with what they're feeling. And if I know what it feels like to feel disappointed, I can empathize with that feeling. And the set method, we really work to help you understand those triggers and biases so you can really move past the why of like, should they feel this? Because it's kind of a waste of our time. They are feeling it. And Mm -hmm. when we can get to the space of empathy with the feeling and not stuck in the why are they feeling this way, does it matter? Should they feel it? It changes how we experience their emotions. And that's what we walk everyone through in the book, like diving into that personal work. And it's okay to in the moment be like, I'm feeling really frustrated by this. I'm going to call my body so that I can help you. The key with sharing our emotions is also sharing that they're not responsible for calming us. Mm-hmm. There's no world in which you are going to move through the day, never feeling frustrated, disappointed, upset, angry, sad, etc., There's not a human in this planet unless there's a hormonal chemical imbalance that is happy, calm, regulated all the time. It's not the goal. And so if we're going to feel these feelings, I think it's actually really important that we voice them, that we say, oh man, I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling frustrated and then model. And here's what I do with that feeling so that kids hear, it's not my job to calm you down. You've got that. Yes. That is so important because I think it gives parents a lot of permission to stop holding it in because I think they have, many of us have been told like, you know, this is, I think one of the the tricky things about parenting is we get so much of our information from like sound bites on the internet. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a lack of like the more robust context or nuance. And so it's like, yes, we're told you shouldn't, make your children responsible for your emotions. Fantastic. I agree with that. But what does that look like in practice? Does it mean I hold it in? Does it mean I stuff it down? Does it mean I pretend like I'm happy when I'm really, really pissed? Does it mean, so, and like, to your point, like no to all of those things. It means I work on regulating myself to the best of my ability to have compassion for myself when I am just like overwhelmed by a feeling and then to narrate that process for my kids so they can understand what's happening. And in it's in that process that I'm sort of not making it their responsibility. So I can have the feelings. I can show the feelings to my child. I can narrate and name the feelings to my child. And it's the, I'm going to go do this thing real quick to regulate my emotional experience. That's the part that kind of models the the boundary, right? Yep. I I'm going to I'm I am in charge of my feelings, you're not. Yeah. And I think and they play a role in them, right? Like they I'm a sound sensitive human, right? We all we go into the eight sensory systems in the book and helping f- people figure out like what are you sensitive to slash what regulates you? I'm regulated by touch, I'm regulated by proprioceptive input, that like deep pressure. I could get a massage for four days and be like, I want more. And I am sensitive to vestibular input, like spinning or swinging is my nightmare, or um sounds. So like 
just clicking, tapping, especially, or like sound that I'm not in control of. I can put music on as loud as I want. Um, but if someone is just like yelling around me, I go a little nuts and I married a drummer. And so there's a lot of sound around (laughs) me and I like, this can add up for me. And so I will tell my two-year-old when he is screaming loudly or if this like Thomas the train toy that like gets stuck in the corner sometimes it's just like clicking makes me want to chuck it out a window I will let him know I have to take some space because my body's feeling overwhelmed from all the sound I'm gonna calm and then I'm gonna come back and help you or buddy when you're screaming really loudly my body feels overwhelmed I have to calm my body before I can help you So I'm not saying you need to stop screaming for me to feel calm. What I'm saying is I have sensitivities. This is how my nervous system works. And then we break down his too. We'll talk about his sometimes like, oh yeah, sometimes your body feels really overwhelmed from touching things when clothes are too tight or if somebody is snuggling into your body for a long time, sometimes that feels overwhelming for you. Here are things that you can do to help your body feel calm. So just normalizing that we all have a nervous system and a part of being in relationship, again, back to the like, we're in relationship with one another. Part of being in relationship is us understanding what are you sensitive to? What helps you calm? And it's not his job to calm me. And I will still express to him that we all have a nervous system and here are things that I have to do to take care of me. And sometimes that's proactively setting boundaries or sometimes it's in the moment setting boundaries. Like I will finish my breakfast before I come play because that helps my body feel calm and ready to play with you. Things like that. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, I think you said something else that brings me back to what we were talking earlier about like this perception of like speaking down to kids. And I think like you know, whatever you want to call it, gentle parenting, respectful parenting, responsive parenting, whatever kind of new age parenting we're talking about. I think sometimes people will like sort of give it a, you know, jab at it or make fun of it because they're like, oh, you know, we're going to explain every little thing to our kids. And and they, they call that like talking down to kids. And I think what we have to remember is like, what you just described, the tone like we're talking about before, the tone is like a real relatable tone. Like you would talk to anybody else, mm-hmm. but the words, the content is developmentally appropriate. You are using words that are actually at the sort of c- comprehension vocabulary level of a young child. So you do say things like, I'm going to help my body calm down so that then mm-hmm. I can come and help you. And I think this is where I think sometimes people will like poke fun at this type of communication because they're like, it doesn't feel that natural or it feels sort of contrived or pedantic, whatever. And in fact, I think it's like, you know, you can do this so authentically, but it's about, it's about communicating in a way that, uh, depending on where your child is developmentally, that they can understand the words you're saying because Mm -hmm. that. We have to kind of meet them where they're at. Totally. And the way that I talk to my husband when I'm like in conflict with my husband and I'm feeling frustrated, I'm going to use that same approach. I'm going to let him know, hey, I need a minute before we can finish this. I'm frustrated. And like that might be like the words that I use. And if I just turn 
to Sage and said, I need a minute before we finish this. I'm frustrated. In his mind, he's saying, am I frustrating her? Is it my job when she says she needs a minute? Is she mad at me? Do I have to calm her down? Am I supposed to stop something? Like he internally is designed to ask himself all those questions. And so when I say, I feel frustrated when I hear loud noises, I need to take space and calm my body down. I'll be right back to help you. It answers a lot of those questions for him. Yes, I think that is the critical piece. And I think that's where, you know, where, like you said, not every parent has a master's in child education or, you know, a PhD in clinical psychology. We don't expect parents to always know this stuff. And sometimes if you don't know the why behind some of these strategies, you can get really overwhelmed. You can feel like I'm just kind of like randomly grasping at straws, just kind of following scripts and not really understanding why they work or how to actually modify them to fit a particular situation. Like you kind of are stuck with these cookie cutter strategies, but really I think the core, the real, the real task for all of us as parents is to figure out how do I kind of comb through the information that's out there and how do I kind of try to understand core framework, the fundamental building blocks of this so that then I can use it in my own way with my kid based on the situation that we're in, based on my way of communicating and their way of understanding. And that is what, that's really, that's the magic right there. And it's hard. And within your cultural context, like the way that we exist in my household is going to be different than the way that people exist in their households. And it doesn't make one right or wrong or better or worse. I, my goal in our book and in our work is to, it's broken up into three parts. And part one really focuses on both kind of the nerdiness, like the why, what's happening and the adult. And then part two goes into the kid because I don't want you to just pop into like, all right, tell me what people always come to us for like, what do I say to my kid? What do I do with my kid? And I can give you some scripts and some like activities to try, but you're going to lose the authenticity if you don't understand the why, or it's only going to apply in certain settings, or it's not going to work for your unique child. And I would rather equip you with like, here's what's happening inside their body. Here's what's happening inside your body. And here's where to go with that. And Mm -hmm. just as I was saying, like, I'm sound sensitive and vestibular sensitive, that like swinging, spinning, my child is touch sensitive and he seeks vestibular input. So swinging, spinning is really calming for him. Touch is really calming for me. And so if I did the same things with him when he's upset that work for me, it would actually further dysregulate him and wouldn't be helpful. And so I think one of the challenges with like bite-sized parenting information existing so widespread right now is that you end up with this, like, I'm going to pull this thing away, this one takeaway. It's like, that doesn't work for my kid. And I would much rather help you understand your kid's nervous system, what's happening inside and your own nervous system so that you can develop tools and strategies for the unique humans that are actually Mm going to be effective. Yes. I mean, we're speaking the exact same language. I feel like it's so nice and refreshing to talk to someone who's doing this same work because I always, I also like, I'm always torn between like, I mean, I, 
people want me to tell them what to say. And I'm like, okay, but let me give you some like asterisk next to that and just say, this might not work in any situation. And also like, how do you take it and make it sound like the way you talk to your kid? Like, how do you talk to your kid? Because your kid knows you. If you all of a sudden start talking like someone you heard on Instagram, they're going to be like, who, the hell, what are you, who, are, who are you trying to talk like? That's not the way right. you talk. Right. They're like in my household, we'll say like, oh man, that sucks. And like my mother-in-law is never going to say the word sucks and that's okay. And so for her, when she is connecting with Sage and validating his emotions, she's not going to say, oh man, that sucks. She's going to say it in her own cultural context, right? With her own vocabulary. And that's how he's going to feel just like the human in our life who like changes her tone when she talks to kids and says, like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, what are, that's not who you are. And it's that noticing of authenticity. And I would so much rather see somebody say like, oh man, that sucks. Or honestly, like drop some swear words around when they are truly being authentic and connecting than say the right script. A little bit ago, Zach had walked into the room and I'd been crying and he was like, oh no, you look sad. And I was like, no shit. Is it the tears coming down my face? Like what? (laughs) Way to go, bud. And it was like, he was trying to say the right thing, right? Instead of like, oh wow, what's going on? Like, did something happen? Like his normal vocabulary went out the window and he was like, what am I supposed to say when I walk into my wife's crying? And he like pulled from the script and it didn't feel connecting. And so it wasn't effective. I didn't feel more connected to him. And I ended up like pulling back and was like, yeah, I am crying. (laughs) I am sad. Like I get sassy and snippy and sarcastic when I'm dysregulated, like more than yelling. That's my go-to. So I'm like, way to go, bud. Like you figured it out. I'm sad. And (laughs) I like, it doesn't then feel connecting. And I think this happens with kids a lot. And so really looking at who are they? And for some kids, it's saying nothing. And for other Mm -hmm. kids, it's validating their experience. And It takes a little bit of understanding who they are and how their nervous system works to know what approach to try or what scripts or what whether or not to touch them. Do they want to hug or is that going to not be helpful, et cetera? And we got dive in like all the behind the scenes work, I think of it as in the book first before we even go into and hear strategies with your kid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so helpful because I think it is very tempting to give parents exactly what they're asking for. Yeah, we <laughs> all then, want it. Yeah. Cause, cause we're, we're also, I think we're all conditioned at this point with like the access to information to just be like, can you just jump to the part where you tell me what to do, please? Because that's <laughs> what I'm used to. I'm used to that instant gratification. And it's so frustrating for parents when, 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 you know, probably the the more um, helpful people, the people who are yeah. well, probably going to be more helpful in the long run say, let's, let's slow down. Let's figure out what's not working first. Like when you, you were talking about the eight senses and I bet you there are people listening. There've been, we've done a couple episodes on, you know, all eight senses. So people, some people listening might be like, Ooh, I know that there are eight, but some parents are like, wait, counting on their fingers. Like what? I thought sound, taste, touch, yeah, yeah. smell. Where do I go from here? Yeah. Talk, <laughs> talk a little bit about the eight senses and perhaps how to like, what are some ways for us as parents to perhaps figure out what our kids 
sensitivities are, what senses they seek, you know, and mm-hmm. how to how to frame that for people a little bit. Totally. So not only could talk about this for a little bit, I could talk about forever. This know, is something I, I feel it. so strongly about. Um, it changed me as a teacher, as a parent, as a human. So there are three more senses besides those five that we often hear about. We have interception, and this is where you notice the feelings inside your body. So um, if I say I have butterflies in my stomach, you know what that feels like inside, or it could be like hungry or tired. What What does that feel like inside of your body? And kids who are interceptive sensitive, who have like heightened awareness of their interception, usually like potty train pretty easily because they're really aware of when they have to go pee. Kids who have lower interceptive awareness, usually it's harder to potty train because they don't notice those feelings as readily. Um, Just as a little like uh, example there. And then we have vestibular. This is your movement sense. So it is located in your inner ear. It's responsible for your balance. And you get this input through like anytime you move the plane of your head. So when a kid goes down to like crawl or rolling over or swinging or spinning, Dipping upside down is going to give you that. And then we have proprioception. And this is in your like muscles and joints. And it's, we get it through like heavy work or big body play, those big jumps. You can like jump on a trampoline and kind of get that input in. When I'm working with kids who are proprioceptive seeking, where they're like really looking for a lot of this uh, input, I'm going to do jumps with them. Hopefully on like a trampoline if I can do it, because you can like really get in there and get some um, big bang for your buck. But if I don't have a trampoline readily available, I'm going to do jumps with them where I hold their hands and on the way down, I'm going to give a little pressure. So it kind of like adds to it in the same way that I might also have them like carry a backpack when we go to the car that adds a little weight to what they're carrying. Um, If you think of this as like going to the gym, it's like adding weight is going to give that heavy work. I love this. This is really regulating for me. That proprioception, I can wear a baby on my body all day long. And like, I love it. It fuels me. And my husband would be touched out and is like 20 minutes in, like I need a break. We are all sensitive to some things, which means it drains. We think of it as a battery. The minute you wake up, your battery starts to drain, whether you're doing something or not. Your brain's job is to say, am I safe? And it does that by paying attention to all of these senses to say, am I safe? Is there somebody coming into this room that I need to be able to see and be aware of? Is there a sound I just heard? If a car drives by, my brain says, you're safe. You don't have to pay attention to it. If my fire alarm goes off, my brain says, you're not safe. Pay attention to it. So in order to do all of this work, it's using these eight senses to kind of take stock of the environment all day. It's draining my battery. There are certain things that each of us have sensitivities to within these eight that are going to drain our battery faster. And it's kind of like if you were to like stream something on your phone, like that's going to drain your battery faster than if you text somebody. And some kids, some adults, some humans have a lot of sensitivities that a number of these senses they are sensitive to. And so their brain is kind of working like overtime a lot and it can be really draining and overwhelming and they might need more time where they have like quiet spaces that they can be in. There's not a lot going on. Um, And or they might turn to some of their regulating activities, those things that recharge us. 
now. They're literally like to be an OT now, you have to have a master's degree in occupational therapy to be a practicing OT. So this is something like people get a graduate degree in to like really be able to assess. I wouldn't expect a parent to be like, got it. I know my child's exact sensory profile after listening to this, but we can look for little cues and you want to be like a detective where if you pay attention and you say like, okay, so for us, I was like, man, every time Sage, my little guy, every time he is in a loud space, he's sobbing. Anytime there's background noise on, he would start to cry like as a baby. And so if there was music playing in the background, I'm one of five kids. So there's so many people in my life, in my family. And if we were in like a large group hang, he would just either shut down or start crying. And so we're like, all right, sound seems to add up for him. Like as we started to kind of look at those data points, and then we would notice if we run the blender for smoothies or we grind our own beans for our coffee, like it was his nightmare. And so we added headphones for him. And now still to this day, he's two and a half. He will ask for his headphones and we'll say, hey, we're going to make a smoothie. And he'll say, can I have my headphones, please? And he'll pop them on and go and play and wear his headphones to drown out some of that sound. And so... Part of this was just like observing to see how does he react to different things. We noticed every time we would do a diaper change or put sunscreen on or as he got older and he could tell us like this feels too tight or this is itchy. There were a lot of things that would add up around touch that like tactile sense um, where he would feel sensitive to certain things. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, okay, cool. Touch is another sensitivity of his. And then when we started to watch him play and just observe and see like, what does he gravitate towards? What kind of things does he ask for? He loved going on the swings. He and my husband play this game they call where, 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 where now like if we're going into a restaurant or we're walking from the car to anywhere, he will ask Zach to play where, where, where. He'll sit on Zach's shoulders. Zach will hold his hands and Zach pretends that he doesn't know where Sage is. Where did Sage go? And he'll like turn and Sage is now like kind of spinning and moving around and he cracks up and it recharges him and fills him up because he's getting that same input he would get if he was on a swing or spinning on a chair or sitting on a sit and spin. And so as we just noticed, like what recharges him, what does he gravitate toward? And then what are those sensitivities? Then we could look at this whole picture and I can say, okay, every single freaking day, we're going to put clothes on and get out the house. He's going to have diaper changes. There are going to be things that we have to do that require touch. He's going to be exposed to sounds all day long. So it's going to be draining his battery. How can I get him access to the things that will recharge him? Which are two things, that vestibular and a sensory break, where we can carve out times or spaces where he is in a quiet space that's predictable, where he's the only one creating the sound, uh, which honestly right now for us is our basement. He'll go down and like he will play with Zach's tools down there that he's learned all about. It's a predictable space. No one else is down there. He can't hear a whole lot else. He's in charge of all the noise that happens. A lot of sound sensitive humans. If we are in charge of the noise, it's not a sensitivity for us. It's only if it's outside of our control. Right. That um, makes sense because it's not activating the amygdala. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so for starters, it's just observation. It's really looking at like what happens when. 
OTs are detectives that navigate a lot of trial and error. Um, of like, if I try this, what happens? And sometimes it's, okay, what if I try that a little bit longer? What if I do more spinning or more swinging? Is it helpful? Was it just not enough? Or maybe in your getting, you're getting ready for bed and you add in some of this input for regulation. And we have a family who they were like jump playing a jumping game and like jump on the bed and like swipe uh, kids' legs and they were loving it. And it's like really engaging, both connected and it was regulating activity for these kids. And then we found if they did it for more than 10 minutes, it was dysregulating. It was too much. And they would get like hyped up. But if they did it for five minutes or less, it didn't seem to be enough to fill their cup. So the sweet spot for their family was playing this game for five to 10 minutes. And so it's a lot of like kind of playing with how much once you figure out what those sensitivities are and what what's regulating for you. But I think just understanding that these eight senses exist yeah. and that every human on the planet has sensitivities and every human on the planet has regulating activities is a great jumping off point. Yeah. I think that's so helpful. I, it makes me think like, so my daughter, she's four and she has, she's has a much more sensitive nervous system than my son, who's almost six. And I remember like my son was just sort of mellow. He just, he, he's just temperamentally, he can, he can move through spaces with more ease. Um, and my daughter just can't she's way more sensitive to sound. Like at whatever we're outside, if like there are noises, like I will, I'll watch her, like put her hands up over her ears. Like when she was really little, like, you know, if we mm-hmm. put the blender on or the vacuum and she wasn't prepared, she would have a huge startle response and really need some time to come back down. And so, and interestingly, you know, when we go to the place that she's on the swing she cannot possibly get enough swing. Like you can't push this kid enough. She's already learned how to pump because she needs to be in charge because no one will push her long enough. And so she's like, well, I will just figure out, like my older kid does not know how to pump on the swing because he doesn't really need to. And she's like, you're not done. You need to push me more. And like, Mm -hmm. even when she has tantrums or meltdowns, I will, she kicks her feet into the floor so hard. Like, hmm. and, mm-hmm. and I know, and so now like, I'll actually like when she lets me, cause I know that she's, she's like, we were talking about earlier, like if, talking to her when she's having a meltdown doesn't work for her. I have to mm-hmm. be quiet, but I have learned that if I push my hands against her feet, when she's like in the throes and like, usually if I get too close, I'm going to get swiped at. But mm-hmm. if I push my hands against her feet, she'll push back. And will let me give her proprioceptive input. And Mm -hmm. I've even taught her in not hot moments that if she's upset, if she pushes against the wall with her feet, that helps her to feel better. And we've talked about this. And so like I'm thinking about giving her tools, either tools Mm -hmm. she'll accept me facilitating or tools she can do by herself that touch on those those sensory inputs that regulate her and I'm mindful of sensory inputs that don't. She's sensitive to sound. And when she's at a 10, me talking is more sound. And so I can't talk. Mm-hmm. And I just have to accept that that's the way her nervous system requires co-regulation. Yeah. And, and my son's a totally different kid. If I give yeah. him a massage, he's like, ah, don't, ow, I don't like that. Whereas like my daughter, like you can give her like a very firm massage and like she's yeah. like 
just relaxed, like more please. You know, she just yeah, likes him. <laughs> My son, like, if you put lotion on him, he's like freaks out for days. He like won't let, like, he won't let me near him with sunblock. He has to do it himself. We've literally tried ten different sunscreens to find like the like least greasy one because he's so sensitive to that feet heat. So he's really sensitive to touch in ways that she's totally not. So it's like each kid's got their own profile. We all have our own profile. I'm sure as people are listening to this, they're like, oh gosh, yes. Yeah. So it's like if you almost think of it like like a soundboard with like those like levers, like dial up, dial down, find your kids up and down on each kind of, uh, in each kind of spectrum. And you yeah. might, that might be a good place to start. Yeah. We, um, dive into exactly this in chapter three of the book. That's all dedicated to like figuring out the ner- your nervous system, your kid's nervous system, et cetera. And little clues to like, what might, help you notice like how do these different things present in different ways and at different ages and stages because they present real young um when we're able to tune into them and it's you mentioned the like sensory mismatch which I think is so challenging uh is when like we for instance sage wants vestibular input and I would pass out or get nauseous if I had the amount of vestibular input he has or requires. And I love touch. And when he's upset, my like instant like desire is to touch him because that's what's regulating for me. And mm-hmm. I have to like override that in the moment, right? Like I have to be like, Alyssa, that's what you want because you're now dysregulated by his dysregulation and it's not what he needs. Uh, and what he really needs is for you to stop talking, (laughs) for you to give him a little space, and if possible, to have access to vestibular input. I think one of the things that's super cool, and we break this down in the book too, is that it's not just a reactive game. So it's not just like when they're upset, what do we do? But a lot of this work can happen throughout the day proactively, kind of like how we don't wait until a kid's hangry and then we feed them and then we wait until a kid's hangry and then we feed them. Like we try to stay ahead of it. We feed them breakfast proactively to try and prevent them from being hangry and then a snack and then lunch and then a snack and then dinner or whatever. And it's all in the effort of like, we're trying to not get to a hangry place or not get to an overtired place. We're proactive about it. And we do the same thing with regulation where when you know what's regulating for them, then you can be proactive. You can say like, all right, I know for Sage that we are going to do certain things in the morning as we're getting ready that deplete him, that pull from his nervous system. We're going to put clothes on. He's going to go to the bathroom. Like there's all these things that are touch related that are going to occur. And so he has access to a sit and spin in the morning, or we will play games where he's right now really into somersaults because he just learned how to do them. And so we play certain games where he gets to like do a somersault as a part of kind of like an obstacle course between the couch and the bathroom. Uh, And really in the name of like, how do I get some of this input in, in the morning proactively so that the inevitable withdrawals don't bring him to a 10, right? Mm -hmm. Our goal is like, how do we help kids hang out in this space between like a three and an eight as much as possible, that there's going to be fluctuation, but to really try and avoid the one and two and the nine and 10, where you're like so heightened or so sad and depressed. I want you to have a range of regulation and a range of emotions. 
And what does it look like to have that kind of within this spectrum of a three to an eight? And for us, that is where the proactive work comes in. And it requires understanding what's regulating for them in order to proactively build that in. I think that's so fantastic. I talk about that a lot too, of like, can you take like breaks throughout the day, like to, to just get ahead of it? Like Mm -hmm. if you have a kid, like my daughter, I know she needs to do something with like proprioceptive input pretty regularly throughout the day so she can fill back up. And And you also said something which I think is really smart. So it's like, yes, we want to add in the things that are regulating, but we also want to create space for the absence of the things that are dysregulating. Mm -hmm. So quiet time for her or for your son. For my son, it's like he needs like time in the bath. Like he loves to be in Mm -hmm. the water because he doesn't let like touch is very stimulating, but like water is not. Mm -hmm. It's like the absence. I think there's something about being in water. It's like it's all it's enveloping in a way that like doesn't have. He's also probably naked, so there's no clothes touching Mm -hmm. him. Oh yeah, this kid's naked. Saying, welcome to my household. Yeah. Like the minute he gets home, like the clothes are off because he doesn't like it on. And so if I was going to be like, you have to wear your clothes in the house, like it's like, no, I'm going to let, I mean, we, we, we ask that the underwear stays on. That's where we draw the line, but he doesn't want, it's like, you know, we live in in New York outside of the city and like, it gets cold in the winter all year long. This kid is not wearing any clothes. And if I was like, the rules are you're going to be too cold. And so you need to put your clothes on. Like I'd be picking an arbitrary rule that didn't serve his nervous system at all, which would be putting myself in like, I would be setting myself up for a much more stressful day. Cause, cause it's all parallel too, right? Like us thinking about our kids regulation kind of sort of aids in our own regulation because if oh, my it's kids all about us. Sounds, if they're regulated, like <laughs> this is way easier to be me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. At the end of the day, I'm like, how do I make my life as easy as possible? And this plays a huge role in that. And if you were to tell him like, this is what you need to do to be warm or whatever, we're taking away an opportunity for him to learn body awareness and to show that we trust him. Mm -hmm. And when we say something like, Hey, here are the rules in our house. Got to keep our underwear on here are parts of our body that we don't have out in public or whatever your ground rules are. Mm -hmm. And here's why. And then after that, I trust you to choose the clothes that feel comfortable for your body the clothes that are going to keep you warm. I can let you know what the weather's going to be like. I can let you know. You you can feel what it feels like inside. If you start to get cold, you know where things are to put on and you can always ask for help. But if we're saying, I'm going to choose that for you, we're missing this opportunity to say, I trust you to listen to your body and let me know what you need. Mm-hmm. And not only are we communicating that, but we are not interrupting a process that they might actually need to be mm-hmm. engaging in to regulate their nervous system. Um, mm-hmm. So, oh man, this is like, I think this is such a helpful reframe for parents. And I, I, this, I'm super excited. Your book comes out today. So people can go on, on wherever they get their books and they can order it right now. Correct. Absolutely. Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. And um, it's in hardcover. And then I read the audiobook. 
I love Audible. I love hearing your people's voices in my ear. I'm a mom, so I have, you know, it's much easier for me to listen to a book than read a book in reality. And so I'm, I always love it when like the author reads the book because then it's just so much more personal. Um, Where else can people find you, your work, learn more about all these amazing things you're doing? You have so many awesome stuff going, so many awesome things going on. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So we are also, I'm doing a little book tour. I'm seven billion weeks pregnant right now. So um, we have a short book tour this fall until my midwives are like, you can't travel after that. Uh, and if so if people want to see it live, I'm going to do a live workshop where I'm really going to dive into like sensory versus emotional regulation and what this really looks like if this conversation was exciting for you. Uh, and then it'll be live Q&A, sometimes with a fun little guest there with us in different cities throughout the U.S. And uh, you can find out those details at seedandso.org slash book tour. And otherwise, you can find us on social. I hang out on all the social channels except for Twitter. I do threads. Um, just cool mom over here. And it's at seed.and.so on all of our platforms there. Or seedandso.org is like the mothership. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the podcast, since everyone is assuming, I'm assuming everyone's tuning into this podcast, you're a podcast listener. Uh, we have Voices of Your Village podcast. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll put links to all of that, you know, Thanks. in the show notes so people can, can follow you. Um, I'm really excited to read this book. I think the work you do is awesome and come back anytime, anytime. Thanks. I would love to get nerdy with you anytime. So I feel like we have so many nerdy conversations in the future. Like we just scratched the surface. I love it. I love it. Moms, dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and all of you caregivers out there. I am so grateful for everyone who has been so engaged, supportive, and vocal throughout the two years of this podcast, Securely Attached. And I am so excited that with your help, Securely Attached made it onto the top 100 chart for Apple Podcasts and is in the 2% of most downloaded podcasts worldwide. Wow, I am so thankful to you. If you want to celebrate this major milestone with me, one massive way you can help me is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews not only help me know what topics you're interested in having me explore deeper, but also helps me get some amazing experts on the show to share their wisdom with you. And so if you could take a quick minute to leave a review, it would be so amazing and I am so grateful for it. And since I could not have achieved this massive milestone without you, I wanted a way to express my appreciation So I'm giving anyone that leaves an Apple podcast review a copy of my Banished Burnout weekly calendar for adults and one for kids absolutely free. All you have to do to get this calendar is to DM me the word review at Dr. Sarah Bren on Instagram. I cannot thank you enough for helping us climb the charts and I cannot wait to see where we're going next. So keep those reviews coming and don't forget to DM me the word review to get your free Banished Burnout calendar. Thanks for being here. And don't be a stranger.